0: We all know what happened, September 11th, 2001. Yeah, anyone can help me. September 11th, 2001. Yeah, the Trade Tower bombings. The people attacked America. Right, it's the D-Day of our our generation, uh, if you will. D-Day is that? That's not quite right. It was a uh, Pearl Harbor bombing of our generation. The terrorists hijacked a few airplanes, flew into the World Trade Center. Killed some 4,000 people. Towers came down to rubble. Everything that symbolized America and our um, prosperity fell down to the ground. You guys know what happened a month later? October 7th, 2001. I stumped you. <laughs> what happened a month later? The United States invaded Afghanistan, and uh, with the aim to dismantle Al Qaeda and remove the Taliban from power in the country. And since then, the United States has fought that war. They are are still fighting against the Taliban insurgents. Seventeen years later, it is the longest lasting war of the United States history. Taliban's greatly unmatched. In military firepower and yet they've put up a a mighty battle that's raged for 17 years one of the questions how do they do this like why why are we still in afghanistan 17 years later trying to trying to restore peace how is it the insurgents in afghanistan have fought the most powerful military the world has ever known and and withstood some for 17 years well there there are lots of reasons for that the answer is really complex one is that the demographics Afghanistan is not just a united country. It's got all these, all these tribes all over the place. So you've you got to conquer them all. You can't just conquer one. You've got, you've got a bunch of them. And second is geography. Afghanistan's filled with mountains and crags in which to hide. Very few popula- main population centers, which everybody comes to. It's all spread out, and they're all up in the, the mountains. They can hide away very easily. But, but a third factor is used in the Taliban as one of these things. You know what that's called? What's that called? IED. It's an IED, right? An improvised explosive device. Basically, a homemade bomb with a, a trigger. Um, comes in different shapes and sizes. Uh, you got military grade explosives there, or, or homemade explosives. You got um, fragmentation generating objects inside of it, like nails and BBs, or you know sometimes just the blast of the explosion alone causes all the damage. Sometimes you have pressure se- pressure sensitive bars which trigger the action or, or maybe trip wires or maybe remote control triggers. I'm not sure if this is a remote control one or not. But the Taliban warriors, right, the freedom fighters in Afghanistan have placed these bombs all different places alongside the road wait, waiting for the American Humvees to go over it and only to have them explode and kill the people inside of it. Or are placing bombs in doorways with trip wires. When the doors are open, those there are, are attacked, whatever destroyed. Um, as a bomb goes off, sometimes a suicide bomber straps these things to his chest, goes in a, into a crowded place, and explodes them all. The, the IED has been used effectively by the fighters in Afghanistan. In fact, so effectively that two thirds of the deaths of the coalition forces have been caused by IEDs. Two-thirds of the deaths. And it's, a, it's an instrument of terror, is really what it is. No specific target in mind. Whoever happens to get in the way will, will pay the price. Now, I bring up IEDs because there are IEDs in the church. The church of, of Jesus Christ. People have planted IEDs in the church waiting for them to explode. The biblical name for them is stumbling blocks. They're stumbling blocks that, that people place, actions that people do that cause others to to stumble and fall. And these stumbling blocks are, are destructive in the church. How is it you think that Satan wages his warfare against the mighty God of the universe who can you know everything is his? How is it that he wages warfare in the church? Well, through these stumbling blocks, the these IEDs, if you will. My message this morning is simply entitled, Stumbling Blocks. It's Paul's main topic in, in our text this morning, Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 19. If you want to open your Bibles there, I'd encourage you. Um, you can take out the Pew Bible, I forget the page, 498 or something like that is, is where it is. Um, so I, I read this text this morning, it begins in, in verse 13. I want you to listen for the destruction that stumbling blocks cause. Romans fourteen, thirteen and 19, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another anymore, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. This passage starts in, in verse 13, which is really a transition phrase. Uh, verse 13 sums up everything that's been happening in verses 1 through 12, and then gives directions for the next 10 verses. It begins like this. It says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. It's what the first 12 verses have been about. It's been talking about people who, who have different convictions, Different beliefs in, in ways that their Christianity should be expressed. Particularly, Paul brings up the issues of diets and days. Right? Some eat these things. Some think these days are different. And I've applied it to things like, like dress and drinking. Or, or things like entertainment and education. Or music and makeup. Or vacation and Vaccinations. Or smoking and Sabbath keeping or cards and carnivals. All these types of things about whether Christians can be involved in them, whether they can do them or not. And some believe they can and some believe they can't. And then there's there's differences in those. And Paul simply says, don't pass judgment upon others who have different convictions than you. Who live out their Christianity a little bit different than you. Instead, we have to welcome them into our fellowship. Romans 14 verse 1 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. See, the church is a body of people. We all come from different backgrounds. Some of us come from godly homes, led by godly fathers. Some of us come from ungodly homes, with absent fathers, perhaps. Some grow up in different types of churches. Some grow up in liturgical churches. We're all quiet and peaceful and controlled and and reverent, reverent. Right? And that has implications upon what kind of church you look for, you want, or your preferences. Others grow up in Pentecostal churches where it's lively and reckless. These are background things that have implications about how we think about our faith and how we live. Some come from wealthy families. Others come from welfare families. And these have a difference, these backgrounds, all have bearings upon our religious opinions and our political opinions and our preferences of how it is that we live but this is the reality of the church of Jesus Christ. Right? When, when God was dealing with the people of the Old Testament, it was one people. It was one culture under one law. But with the Messiah and with the gospel spreading out to all nations, all of different cultures, all coming into one church, Paul had to bring up some of these things. And the church in Rome was, was battling with Jews and Gentiles now living together. And he's saying that live together in, in harmony Right, navigate the waters of, of the differing beliefs and views and traditions that the Jews have and the Gentiles have, and, and live together in harmony. And Paul's exhorting them to unity. And the way he does that, he says to welcome one another, right? to receive one another into their lives. Now, the cultural battle that Rome faced was far more than any cultural battle that we face at Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, for sure. I mean, we... Um, we basically come from one culture. Now, um, we're Americans, right? We're Americans in the Midwest. Now, we have some differences, but we speak the same language, right? But we all are different. Some families have lots of children, some have few, some have none. Some of us are older, some of us are younger, and all those background differences. But, But in the church, these differences should not drive us apart. We should work through them and and walk in unity in the midst of all these different opinions. In fact, that's what Paul says in in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, it's for the one who is weak in faith. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't don't pass judgments on the opinions of others. Don't despise them for their practices. And look look at verse 3 of chapter 14, what it says. It says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him, right? We don't judge and despise others for their differences of what we have, because God has welcomed him. And that's fact, this is the big teaching of Romans fourteen, one through chapter fifteen, verse seven. And I've said this every time, every one of these messages I've had. It said, if God has welcomed someone into his kingdom, we ought to welcome them into our fellowship. If they want to come in, right? So, so in other words, right? When, when God welcomes someone into His kingdom, if He's good enough for God. He must be good enough for us. And that's exactly what He says in Romans fifteen, verse seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And when dealing with people with different practices and and uh, different cultures, different idiosyncrasies. We need to look at God and see how does God welcome them. If God has welcomed them, then wh- why don't we? We have to welcome them with open arms. Paul was clear. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Right? That's the kingdom. Right? Those are the people coming to the kingdom who, who repent of their sins. Who confess that Christ is Lord, who place their submission under the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord. Once we do that, he says, He's welcomed into God's kingdom. He will be saved. And those are the very people that we ought to welcome, differing beliefs and all. And that's Paul's point in verses 1 through 12. Where we see the transition, then in verse thirteen, where where verses one through twelve speaks about our attitudes toward others, our attitudes toward others should be welcoming, but now in thirteen and following, he he makes a turn. He says, not dealing just with attitudes of others, but actions that we have towards other people. The main point is found in verse thirteen, and, and again, we read it right. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Right? Don't have this attitude, but rather, in your action, decide never. To put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. A stumbling block is literally something that you trip over. Or you, you fall down because you trip over it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the sidewalk that's lifted up that you're walking over. You don't see and you trip over it and you fall down. A hindrance is something that really just gets in your way. That that stops you from from going where, where you're trying to go. It, it like you're walking along the path and the hindrance like you're trying to get around it. And maybe it, it moves or... Somehow it can't get there. Maybe something in the way. Maybe a car in the bike path or something you got to try to try to get around. The picture here is, is really easy to see. You have you have a Christian walking down the street, right, seeking the Lord, the Lord of all, seeking to walk in his ways. And then the actions of another Christian get in the way and impede his walk. He either stumbles, stumbles and falls or he's hindered and prevented from continuing on. That's what these stumbling blocks are. And we see in verse 14 that Paul's talking about the same sort of things that he brought up at the beginning of the chapter. He says this in 14, verse 14. It says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it to be unclean. In other words, right, we're not talking about sin here. Right? We're talking about opinions, we're talking about preferences. We're talking about even convictions about how one ought to live. We're talking about application of Scripture, how it is that someone lives. And Paul says there's nothing that's unclean. And he's talking about things like this whether it's a bottle of wine at dinner, or, or whether it's an evening at the theater, or whether it's a song that plays in your car, or a game of pool at the bar. These sorts of things are not unclean in and of themselves, but here it comes, for others it may be unclean. And what what you do in cleanness may actually be an ID, a stumbling block for other people. It, it, it may be a hindrance to other people. And so Paul's advice simply is my first point. He says, walk in love, verses 15 and 16. And here it is, living out your Christian faith. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Right? You eat something that you know is clean, but your brother thinks it's wrong, they're grieved at your impiety. And you don't care what they think. You don't care that your brother is grieved. And when you do that, you're not walking in love. Like going up to a Jewish person with a hot dog on a stick and say, hey, look at this. <laughs> My pork dog, whatever. <laughs> it tastes really good. It's not loving to do that. If someone objects in their own standards and convictions, then, then don't be doing that. Don't be eating the corn dog in front of the Jewish person who thinks that, oh, it pulls, stirs up all that other stuff from there. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with the food. I can eat it. In fact, didn't Paul say in verse 14, nothing's unclean of itself. I I do no wrong in eating. The problem is you don't read all of Paul. The end of verse 14, it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Here You have something clean for you, unclean for your brother. And if you live your life without concern for your brother, then by definition, practically, you're not living in love. You're living without love. Because love, right, isn't it concern for other people? You're concerned for them rather than yourself. It's like the passage we read in Philippians 2 about humility. It's considering others more important than yourself, right? Love lifts up other people. And love will serve them and help them and think of them first. And when you're only concerned for yourself, it's clean, I could do it. But not realizing all the social implications about others, then you're not walking in love, and the results can be devastating. Look at verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The reason why I talked about IEDs this morning is just to try to help jolt you and alert you of how dangerous this is. This isn't, this isn't just falling over and stubbing your toe and then, you know, whatever, scraping your nose a little bit. This this isn't falling over and and breaking your arm. This is being tripped and being destroyed. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. IEDs are deadly and so also are stumbling blocks. This word destroy is just as strong. It's used of things like breadcrumbs that fall on the ground and biodegrade. Destroyed, gone, gone. It's used of people who drown in a lake or burn in the fire. They're killed, they're destroyed. Most often it's used in the context of eternal damnation. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not what? Be destroyed. Right here. Shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul used it in Romans 2.12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That is standing before God in judgment day, right? You you uh, you don't have a law? Well, God won't even use a law to judge you and condemn you because you're a child of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 3, you've shown yourself not to do what is right. And Paul says here in verse 15 that through your liberty, you can destroy a brother. You can have an IED that blows up and destroys them. Now, of course, we know that those who believe in Christ are eternally secure. That's what Paul said in Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet it says that we can destroy those for whom Christ died. And I just say, don't take this lightly. Don't just say, oh, if they're a Christian, they're okay. They'll, they'll be with God forever. Well, yeah, maybe. But you're just destroying them. You're destroying their life. It's okay. I can destroy their life because they'll be in heaven. It's like, I don't think so. Our actions can do great damage to other believers. I know of many people, talked with many people, who used to be in the church, but what? They've been hurt by people in the church. Never to go back again. Why? Some type of stumbling block, some type of IED, exploded on them. Destroyed them, and they don't have any desire for the church again. If that's what it's like, if I'm going to have these stumbling blocks, if I'm going to face these explosions, ah, I'm just done with that. And, and they've been destroyed in the fact that they've been hurt, that they have gone the rest of their lives without the, the blessing and the benefits the church brings by continually being reminded of the Lord, continually focusing on Him, continually being challenged and encouraged by other believers, continue to be help out. And only the Lord knows their eternal state. When they're away from the church, they're away from the bride, they don't want anything to do with that. All because of stumbling blocks that people in the church have brought to bear upon their lives. And here, here's the shocking thing that struck me in my study this week is that consider how trivial it was in Rome. You had, I presume, religious Jewish people who, who never ate Pork. Growing up, they never ate pork. So them coming to be a believer is very difficult for them even to think about eating pork. Not permissible according to law. Yes, Jesus said all all foods were clean, but they had scruples about it. They just hadn't ever done that before. They knew that Jesus said that it's not what goes into you that defiles you. Rather, it's that that comes out of you, that's your heart. Like, that's what defiles you. It's not just food. They might know that. Paul says you're free to eat the pork. You're free to have pork chops on the grill. Smothered with a sweet baby Ray's barbecue sauce. Covered all around. Can you picture it now? Are you salivating yet? It is springtime. The grills are coming out. You think so, Thatcher? <laughs> yeah. But think about it. Just be careful in Rome is what Paul is saying there's another there's a Jewish brother in your midst and if they hear about your dinner and how much you're delighting in your dinner he just might be be grieved he may be totally uncomfortable with what you're doing I mean you can flaunt your freedom all you want and destroy your brother in the process many people were hurt may have been hurt by the uncaring attitude of others in the church. Like little things like eating and drinking. You say, how could that be? Maybe, I mean, there's some ways I think about how that could have been. Maybe it's the, the Gentiles pushing the Jews. Oh, come on, you can do this. You can do this. And I'll give another example here. But just maybe pushing them like into like beyond their conscience their conscience is saying no no but it's free it's free you're okay no 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 and then beginning in you're just damaging their conscience maybe that's it pushing your freedom on, on others but love will limit your liberty uh, love won't flaunt your freedom it will limit your liberty if if, if what i'm doing causes offense to my my brother and i continue to do it i'm not walking in love a modern scenario might be something like this, right? You have a friend who grew up in the home of an alcoholic father. He comes to faith, begins to know, begins to grow. And for him, he's turning away from everything that he knew about growing up in home. He saw what, what alcohol did to his dad and what it meant to his wife and what it meant to his family and us as kids. And they just want to get away from that. So he comes to faith, begins to grow. You might invite him over for dinner and offer him a, a glass of wine with your dinner. He tells you of his background, and then he's vowed to change his life around. This next generation is going to be different. We're not going to have that poison enter into our home. But, but you press him a little bit. Right? You, you, start, you start talking about his opinion. And you start reading some things from Proverbs. And, and you start showing that there's a difference between the, the drunkard and the one who just drinks. And the drunkard is wrong. That's, that's where you run. But drinking, that's not so bad. You can drink. fact, like Jesus probably had wine. And, and maybe you go into 1 Timothy 5, 23. Where Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And you're just pressing this upon this man who said, no, no, I don't want any of that. You are taking an IED to his face. and He just wants to, he wants to get rid of that. And he begins to falter. Well, here I am. I'm at the home of these strong Christians. And, and they drink. They drink alcohol. Well, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I just got this stigma. Maybe I need to get over that. Maybe it's okay for me to drink. Ah, no, I don't think so. And then the host presses him a little bit more. We like a glass of wine at wintertime. It takes the pressure off, helps us relax. And soon the brother, against his conscience, is forced and pressured by someone else, and he caves takes the wine, and that first glass is the little compromise into his long descent into alcoholism himself, and the generational sin repeats itself. He destroys his family, he destroys his life because of a pushed conscience into an area which was biblically right, but was wrong in the conscience of someone else. (laughs) And catch this, right? You may be right on the issue. There's nothing wrong with a glass of wine. But you've missed the bigger issue. That the conscience is at stake. You need to be concerned for the conscious conscience of another believer. But you've pushed him to ignore his conscience. And that leads him perhaps down the path of destruction. That, that may be a, a way that a stumbling block works. Paul says walk in love. Uh, verse 16, right? Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of. As evil, you you like your wine; it helps you. But in dealing with others, what might be good for you is bad for others. It becomes a very thing that destroys a brother. Or, or another example, I, I, I think about sports. Right? You love your sports. You love your football. You love your bears, right? And you, um, someone else though, who in his former life before he's a Christian. Right. B.C. only knew football as this gambling thing that he did. Not just fantasy football, but beyond that. Betting on games. And so he spent his, his Saturday looking to see whether it's going to be profitable or not. Like high stakes sort of stuff. And he, and he was into it. And they won on Sundays. He won a lot of money. And if they lost, he lost a lot of money. And, and his, his Monday demeanor was all about that before. He would see every game. Okay, who would I bet on? Who would I bet on this game? And he was happy on Monday if he won and grumpy on Monday if he lost. And we came to faith in Jesus, he saw co- how controlling his sports betting was. So he never watched his football again. I-, I remember a friend of mine was just like that in this church. Whatever, 18, 17 years ago. They've moved on now. <clears throat> moved away, different state. But he was so much into the bet. He says, no, I can't deal with that football anymore. Just, for him, it just brings up so much stuff. I just, okay, I'm not going to deal with football with this guy. But to cause him to stumble might be, well, to invite him in, watch the game. And, and he declines, says, no, I'm not, not really into football. No, it's shattering to me. It's good for me. I mean, the Bears, they're getting good finally. They've been bad for so long, right? I played football in high school. And, and when I see them play, I like remembered of all this stuff. And it brings back such good memories for me. But not your buddy. Your buddy, it's a bad thing. So a good thing for you is a bad thing for your buddy. Love would leave it alone, drop the football, and find some other avenue to share life with. Because there are bigger issues at stake than football or alcohol or pork. In fact, Paul talks about the bigger issues. He says, verse 17, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's my second point here this morning, right? Remember the big picture. The Christian life isn't about little things like eating and drinking, It's about the big things like righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I just say how easy it is to focus on the little things. And how easy it is to try to get your little tribe following after your little things. Pharisees did this. They focused attention all upon the externals about how they prayed and their forms of prayer and how they could be seen by everybody to pray, how they could be seen by everybody that they were fasting, that they were giving, right? In fact, they took great attention to the words of oath that they uttered or didn't utter. They paid great attention to the fact that they need to tithe everything. Jesus even said they, they focused so much their attention upon tithing that they, they focused on, on their spices, you know, those things that could only be measured by a teaspoon. But they had to give their 23 and a third percent. So they, they like like scooped it off, right? A tenth for the temple, a tenth for the Levites, and then a third, right, every every year for uh, the poor. And so they measured off this little things, and Jesus rebuked them saying, they're missing the big picture. He says, Matthew twenty three twenty three, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, these spices, and you've neglected the weightier matters of a law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and yet swallowing a camel. Just very concerned about the little thing and missing the big thing is the idea. Paying so much attention to the minor details of religion that they missed The big things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And that's almost exactly what Paul says here in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not the little things. It's the big things. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, right? You don't need to eat right to get to the kingdom of heaven. Right? You don't need to drink right in order to get to the kingdom of heaven. The Christian life is not about those things. The Christian life is about... Righteousness and peace and joy. That when you focus on legalism, all those things go out the door. Righteousness and peace and joy. Uh, see, the kingdom of God is about, about righteousness. Not, not about writing the... the eating the right things, or drinking the right things. Not about keeping the rules to obtain some sort of righteousness. The kingdom of God isn't about doing the right rituals in order to make yourself right before the Lord. The kingdom of God is about genuine righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul talked about that in chapter 4, quoting from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, about how Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He he explained it even further in Romans five, just through Adam sin came into the world. The many were made sinners. So also Christ came into the world. The many are made righteous. He explained in chapter three how that comes through faith in Jesus. How we're righteous. It's our faith that makes us righteous. And Paul says, "Don't make your righteousness about eating and drinking. Don't make your righteousness about all your convictions about what you do. Don't make it about rules and regulations." Don't make it about what you can and can't do. Don't make it about what you should and shouldn't do. The kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about harmony among the brothers. That's what it's about. But it's interesting, is, is it not that those who, were, who are high rules oriented tend to be the most peaceless sort of people? Because you have to do this or you're out. And they become highly judgmental. And it becomes a highly conform. If you conform, yeah, you sit there and get under this thing and you're, you're peace. But if you're not, boy, you're going to smack someone because they can't, you can't do that. right? High judgmentalism when there are high rules. Paul says not about that. It's about peace. Do you realize the kingdom of God is about joy? You're commanded to be happy. The kingdom of God is about happiness. The, the kingdom of God is about joy. Somber church people are not what the kingdom of God is about. Not somber coming in, like, oh, I need to keep the rules, I need to follow this, I need to... (laughs) We should be joyful. Now, that doesn't mean just whatever, flippy, happy, right? But it it means like genuine, deep-down joy we ought to have. And when you make it all about rules, though, you sap peace and joy. You show me a home governed by a strong father with an iron fist And I will show you unhappy, fearful children. And you show me a child in a home governed by a gracious and loving father who accepts and welcomes his kids regardless. I'll show you happy and joyful, secure, delighted children. So with the church, you show me a church filled with all sorts of rules and regulations how to act. No movies, no playing cards. Men, you better make sure your hair is cut. Some of us don't have a problem with that. Some of us have a problem with that. No slacks for women, right? No alcohol whatsoever. And on and on they go. You have a church like that, you'll fill it with unhappy, fearful church members. Fearful. But show me a church where grace rules the day, where love is extended, where people are welcome, the Holy Spirit is moving, and you will find joyful, happy people in that congregation. And Romans 14 is so important to our, our joy. It comes through loving lives that remember what's important. And living this way, there's a benefit, right? verse 18, it says that we are accepted by God, approved by men. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. See, when you're loving others by limiting your own liberty, by not flaunting your freedoms, it finds favor with God and with men. God sees it when you're concerned about other people and not yourself God God sees it when when you seek to please them when you withhold some things that you know you're free to do but because it will cause problems with other people you don't do that and people see when you pull back your freedoms from what it is you you could do to show love towards them they feel loved and appreciated because they see that you're you're pursuing peace it really is my my last point here is pursue peace, <clears throat> verse nineteen. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. So here, the, the peace is not only just um, uh, just a, a peace wholeness with us, but it's also building up this this peace. You know, the only time you can build is in times of peace. Right? It, in Afghanistan, they're not building many buildings nowadays because there's so much war going on. In the Last seventeen years, it's hard to build infrastructure with that. And those in Afghanistan who are resisting the war with the United States, they're not seeking peace. I mean, you just look at these guys. They look like they're seeking peace. They want their own. They want what they have. They're going to explode IEDs on innocent people. It's terrorism. Run amok. They're going to go and they're going to... Rape and pillage the communities. They come in to get power, extort money so it is that they can have their own way. And, and too often, that's what people in the church look like. We want my way. It's my way. I got my way. I got my guns blazing. You you, don't, you you think you could do that? No, no, no. You can't see that movie. Oh, that's really bad. You listen to that music? That artist? Oh, you know this. You do that? Oh, that's really bad, right? And they fight. They pull out their guns. And they're fighting and they're judging one another. Not seeking peace. Not seeking, seeking to build. Have you ever noticed also, people with the, the largest list of convictions often tend to be the most unpeaceful people because they're telling you everything that they need to do, everything that I'm doing, everything you need to do, and they push it out there. And they push it on everybody. It's like these guns. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that was... That was wrong. Didn't realize that was wrong. Oh, didn't. And, and oftentimes, with scriptural reasons, these are biblical convictions we're talking about that people come. Now, there's there's ways to grow, and there are strong people, and there are weak people in here, right? What what Paul is talking about, the strong and the weak, is always starts chapter fourteen. There's strong and the weak in faith, and so there's a way to grow stronger, and certainly, but the way to do that is not take your gun out and blaze it down and smash everyone in judgment away. There's different ways of doing that. But the premise is here is that we're all under the Lord, we're all seeking the Lord, we're all in the process of our sanctification, we're all moving that way. And too often there can be war. But we in church, we all need to put up our peace flag. We need to come to others, right? Waving waving our flag and say, "I'm not I don't have guns blazing. I, I don't I don't have my machine gun. I'm not going to mow you down for the ways that you differ with me." We cuz you think about it, the only guy who's going to wave that thing like that—that that flag is tattered in his hand. The only way he's going to wave that thing is if he's in the midst of war. He's desperate. We've been fighting, and he's just saying, "You know what? Let's stop fighting. Let's just wave the banner of peace." Coming to others, seeking all we can do to love, and serve, and build up. Not seeking our own rights and freedoms, but we're bending the knee and just saying, "You know what? I'm just going to." I'm just going to bow to your preferences. I'm going to live the way you would have us to live. I'm going to, I'm going to help. I'm going to seek peace above all things. So what about you? Are, are you a fighter? you have your guns blazing because of all your biblical convictions? Right? And what's dangerous is the Pharisees were just like that. The people who know the most Bible oftentimes tend to be the most militant. They're the ones that need to be the most gentle and gracious and bring in and welcome him. And help grow those who are weak in faith to realize their freedoms in Jesus. Or are you a peacemaker? Do you seek to build the body? So, verse 19 says So let us pursue what makes for peace and the, the mutual upbuilding that's encouraging others, that's helping others, that's affirming others, rather than tearing them down and telling them how bad they are because they don't have biblical convictions well enough. It is interesting also, when Paul gave instructions for the lord 's Supper, which we 're going to transition to here in just a, a few moments in First Corinthians eleven there was some of this going on. There were factions and divisions within the church, lots of stumbling blocks were being placed in the church that manifest themselves in the lord 's Supper. Listen to what Paul said first corinthians eleven seventeen But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when to you come together it 's not for the better. But for the worse, you come into church, not for the better, but for the worse. You come into church with your guns ready to shoot. He says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, right? There are the, the eat meters, and then there the vegetarians, and then the, the, the sabbatarians, right? And the everyday is good, right? And there's the homeschoolers, and then there's the public schoolers, right? And there's the... Well, the drinkers and the non-drinkers. And there's divisions among you. He says, and I believe it. First Corinthians 11, verse 19. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. And these are some bad things. In order that, that those who are true may be seen to be true. And those who are false may seem to be false. In the church, at Corinth. But he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk what do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and humiliate those who have nothing what shall i say to you shall i commend you in this no i will not there's this church battling i think over some of these same stumbling block issues and then then he gives the recountation of the lord's supper right deliver from the lord i gave to you what i received from the lord right How christ in the i should be betrayed he took bread he given thanks he broke it and he said this is for you do this and remember to me same way he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is a new covenant in your blood, my blood. Do this as so often; you drink it in remembrance of me." And he says, "Often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes." And then he, he says a warning: Whoever then eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then let him eat to the bread and drink. Of the cup. In other words, you're saying, are, are, You have this surrender flag. Are you seeking peace? Are you seeking war? Right. Are, are you giving yourself, bowing yourself to the Lord, and are you doing everything if possible, so far as it depends upon you, Romans 12, 18, to be at peace with all men? Or, or you just want your own deal? I, I, I want to set up my own kingdom. The Lord's Supper is for unity, it's, it's for us for time to to seek unity among us over the central thing, which is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's His death upon the cross that we focus on. We're not focusing upon all these other issues, because they are divisive at best. And, and they're, they're for weak and strong people and others will come along as they go, develop different convictions, and we need to live together in unity and harmony as a church. And I don't think it's an accident that Paul, after espousing the gospel and everything it is, then brings it real practical his shoe level faith, his shoe leather faith. How it ought to work itself out. It ought to work itself out in harmony and love. So we have a chance here now to express that the big picture, the the unity with with Christ, with God, setting our hearts upon righteousness and joy and peace, in the pursuit of peace and the walk of love. So let, let's bow our heads. We prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper again every Sunday. We're going to do. We come closer and closer to Easter. It's a a great chance for us to focus on the cross of Christ. I just really encourage you now just to think, is, is the cross the big thing in your life? Do you really welcome others as God welcomes people? Are you pursuing peace? Are you setting off your IEDs? Are you seeking to lift others up in the church? Are you seeking to serve in love? And I know many, most all of you are, don't have any reason to doubt not. Maybe you've been hurt by an IED in the past and are trying to come in to figure out what, what the life of church really is. I just encourage you to come in. Don't be letting off the bombs on other people, but be gracious and receive them we might know great harmony here at Rock Valley Bible Church. It all comes because Jesus accepts us if we simply believe in Christ. If we believe in what he did on the cross, how his death was sufficient to take the punishment that we deserve, that we who are children of wrath, he bore our wrath for us, that he who deserved life gets life, that's the great realities of of Jesus. And so, Father, I do pray you be with us. God, remind us again the centrality of the cross. Help us to see once again that what matters is not the little details of life, that we might not sweat the small things. God, we might realize the big things, like how we're made right with you and what it means to build peace in the body of Christ and how we can live a a life of happiness and joy. What it means to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. What it means to enjoy your grace. God, that we can extend your glory. So help us to see those things here this morning at Rock Valley Bible Church. Help us as we just eat this bread and drink this cup to, to do so in a way that, that pleases you. And, and I do pray now, God, for the, for the one whose heart is being convicted who sees that maybe he is a fighter She is a fighter, holding her own sin or his sin. If that's you, I just encourage you to repent and eat of the bread, drink of the cup. If not, just let it pass until another day. pray in Jesus' name, amen.